Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. It is the treasure hunt of a lifetime, and now it's landed them on national TV. The Hicks Boys from Baytown were featured on Discovery Channel's Expedition Unknown for their quest to solve the unanswered disappearance of French pirate Jean Lafitte. Yeah, uh, Janelle Bluda has more on their fascinating discovery. Descendants of one of the world's most famous pirates. For the Hicks boys. It started for us with this uh, family story. The legend of French pirate Jean Lafitte was always their family's little secret. We were told as kids that we were directly related to Lafitte. A tale told through time, but like most legends. He just doesn't get the notoriety that he deserves. This one too was lost even to them. Our theory is that he went right outside of Galveston, scuttled his ship, and that's where his ship and treasure is buried today. They heard it from their father, who heard it from his. And they would say, somewhere over there is Lafitte's ship, your ancestor's ship. Each generation searching for the same ship. Of course, it, you couldn't find it, but we looked. But so far, a search is all it's been until now. The ship should be within these borders right here. Somewhere. With the help of Discovery Channel's Expedition Unknown, a major break in the case. Hey guys, I got a good hit right here. Using a magnetic probe, the team finds a large ship-shaped object 15 feet underground outside what they call Lost Lake. They even pull up evidence from below a piece of charred wood and a rusty nail. Just about got to be the remains of the ship. Just about. What's left over? Lafitte's ship is called the Pride, but that's something they've already found. And I'm proud of them. I'm proud of them for digging into it. And whether it's a pirate ship or not, well, they hope it's a clue to their ultimate treasure. Finding out who Lafitte really was. Standing for Houston, Janelle Bluda, KJU 11 News. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today's story, In Search of Lafitte's Treasure. We're glad to have you with us on yet another journey into history here at 1001. And while Jay and Cody Hicks are working to get some exposure for their search, and hopefully their own series, who knows, maybe on the History Channel, we're going to fill you in on the life and legends surrounding the famous pirate, Jean Lafitte. It's time to pour that favorite drink, 
maybe a Captain Morgan's, and fix your sights on the Gulf of Mexico, where gold and silver-laden Spanish ships are crossing the Gulf from west to east on their way from Mexico's port cities past the tip of Florida and into the wide Atlantic, on their way to fill the treasuries of Spain with freshly mined and often freshly minted gold and silver. And some of those trips won't make it out of the Gulf. One reason? The pirate Jean Lafitte. The pirate Jean Lafitte's name has come up a few times in past stories. I know he mentioned him in the Galveston Hurricane story, and he was also included in our discussion of Andy Jackson and the War of 1812. It seems that everywhere Lafitte's name turns up, there's a legend attached to it. And much of it is just that, legend. But there does exist very compelling evidence that there's still a huge catch of treasure buried by Lafitte near the city of Galveston, Texas, and portions of it, according to hearsay, occasionally turn up. Not all pirates were successful, but Lafitte definitely was. Louisiana is also full of Lafitte treasure legends. For years, the name Lafitte struck fear and terror into the hearts of captains and crews of merchant ships and passenger vessels plying the coasts of Texas and Louisiana. From his base in New Orleans, Lafitte commanded a fleet of pirate ships that ranged out into the Gulf of Mexico to prey on mostly unarmed passenger and trade vessels at first. In the process, Lafitte and his crews quickly gained reputations as fearsome pirates, capturing thousands of dollars of treasure, including jewelry. The Lafitte brothers were believed to have been born either in Basque, France, or the French colony of Santo Domingo. Jean Lafitte's older brother, Philip, was operating a warehouse in New Orleans to help distribute the goods smuggled by his brother, Jean. He also ran a blacksmith shop in New Orleans, which was his legitimate business. Philip was reportedly not as much of a sailor as his brother, yet he was the public face of the Lafitte operation, and was known for his wit and charm, in addition to his handling of the sale of smuggled goods. He was the perfect fence for Brother Jean. In 1807, the United States government passed the Embargo Act, demanding customs payments at every port, causing the Lafitte to move their operations to an island in Barataria Bay, Louisiana. The bay is marshy and home to many islands, making any one island used as a pirate base hard to find and even harder to attack. Unless you were extremely familiar with its waters, navigating through the marshy area was dangerous. By 1810, their new port had become very successful. The Lafitte's had a profitable smuggling operation and also started to engage in piracy. Barataria Bay is also considered as a very possible Lafitte treasure location. Today, the low-lying Barataria country is known for its shrimp industry, which is based at villages built on pilings above the marshes. It's known for muskrat trapping, natural gas wells, oil wells, and sulfur production. Despite Lafitte warning the other Baratarians of a possible military attack on their base of operations, a United States naval force successfully invaded in September 1814 and captured most of his fleet. When Andrew Jackson arrived in New Orleans on December 1, 1814, he discovered the city had not created any defenses. It had approximately 1,000 unseasoned troops and two ships for its use. Although the city kept control of the eight ships taken from Lafitte, it didn't have enough sailors to man them for defense. Resentful of the raid on Barataria, Lafitte's men refused to serve on their former ships. In mid-December, Jackson met with Lafitte, who offered to serve if the U.S. would pardon those of his men who agreed to defend the city. Jackson agreed to do so, and Jackson was a man of his word. On December 19th, the state legislature passed a resolution recommending a full pardon for all the former residents at Barataria. In other words, all the pirates. With Lafitte's encouragement, many of his men joined the New Orleans militia, 
or as sailors to man the ships. Others formed three artillery companies. On December 23, 1814, advanced units of the British fleet reached the Mississippi River. Lafitte realized that the American line of defense was so short as to potentially allow the British to encircle the American troops. He suggested that the line be extended to a nearby swamp, and Jackson ordered it done. The British began advancing upon the American lines on December 28th, but were repulsed by an artillery crew manned by two of Lafitte's former lieutenants, Renato Belouche and Dominique Yu. Commander Patterson praised the Baratarian men who served on one of the U.S. Navy ships and whose skill with artillery was greater than their British counterparts. On land and sea, the former pirate gunners earned praise as the battle continued. On January 21st, Jackson issued a statement praising his troops, especially the cannoneers and captains Dominique and Belouche, lately commanding privateers of Barataria. With part of their former crews and many brave citizens of New Orleans who were stationed at numbers 3 and 4, Jackson named Jean and Pierre Lafitte for having exhibited the same courage and fidelity. He formally requested clemency for the Lafitte and the men who had served under them. The government granted them all a full pardon on February 6th. In late 1815 and early 1816, as Mexico was seeking and fighting for its independence from Spain, the Lafitte brothers agreed to act as spies for Spain. Collectively, they were known as Number 13. Pierre was to inform about the situation in New Orleans, and Jean was sent to Galveston Island, a part of Spanish Texas that served as the home base of Louis-Michael Ory, a French privateer who claimed to be a Mexican revolutionary. By early 1817, other revolutionaries had begun to congregate at Galveston, hoping to make it their base to wrest Mexico from Spanish control. Lafitte visited in March 1817. Two weeks into his stay, the two leaders of the revolutionaries left the island. Many historians theorize that Lafitte, whose fleet fire outnumbered that of the privateer, politely asked them to leave, and they quickly did so. The following day, Lafitte took command of the island and appointed his own officers. On April 18th, he sailed for New Orleans to report his activities. With Spanish permission, Lafitte returned to Galveston, promising to make weekly reports of his activities. Lafitte essentially developed Galveston Island as another smuggling base. Like Barataria, Galveston was a seaward island that protected a large inland bay. If you're wondering why Galveston was an attraction for Lafitte, as part of Mexico, Galveston was outside the authority of the United States at that time and was largely uninhabited, except by Native American Karankawa Indians. Texas itself had little population at that time, and the base had no significant populations nearby, so it at least initially, was relatively free of scrutiny from any of the governments in the region. Lafitte named his new colony Campeche, after a Mexican outpost further south along the Gulf Coast. His men tore down the existing houses and built 200 new, sturdier structures. This new location was the site of an old abandoned Spanish fortress, the remains of which can still be seen today just west of Galveston Yacht Basin. Ships operating from Galveston flew the flag of Mexico, they didn't participate in the revolution. Lafitte wanted to avoid a Spanish invasion. In less than a year, Lafitte's colony grew to 100 to 200 men and several women. Lafitte interviewed all newcomers and required them to take an oath of loyalty to him. The headquarters consisted of a two-story building facing the inland harbor, where landings were made. The building was surrounded by a moat and painted red. It became known as the Maison Rouge. 
Lafitte conducted most of his business aboard his ship, the Pride, where he also lived. Lafitte forged letters of mark from an imaginary nation to fraudulently authorize all the ships sailing from Galveston as privateers. The letters gave the ships permission to attack ships from all nations. Lafitte's fleet grew in size. And by the way, we challenge you to repeat Lafitte's fleet three times fast and correctly. And once you get good at that, try saying Fleet Lafitte three times fast. At its peak, the colony had more than 2,000 inhabitants and 120 separate structures. The annual income reached more than $2 million. Incredible. That'd be $34 million in today's terms. In stolen currency and goods. Lafitte, for a time, lived a lavish lifestyle, complete with servants and the finest of everything. In April 1818, the United States passed a law prohibiting the import of slaves into any port in the United States. The law left several loopholes, though, giving permission to any ship to capture a slave ship, regardless of the country of origin. Slaves captured in such actions who were turned over to the customs office would be sold within the United States, with half the profits going to the people who turned them in. Lafitte worked with several smugglers, including Jim Bowie, to profit from the poorly written law. Lafitte's men identified slave ships and captured them. Smugglers would purchase the slaves for a discounted price, march them to Louisiana, and turn them into customs officials. A representative of the smuggler would purchase the slaves at the ensuing auction, and the smuggler would be given half of the purchase price. The smuggler became the lawful owner of the slaves and could resell them in New Orleans or transport them for sale in other parts of the Deep South, which was the major market of the time. In 1818, the colony suffered hardships. After Lafitte's men kidnapped a Karankawa woman, warriors of her tribe attacked and killed five men of the colony. The pirates aimed the artillery at the Karankawa camp, killing most of the men in the tribe. The Karankawa people are believed to have migrated from the Caribbean thousands of years ago, settling in along what is now the eastern Texas and Louisiana coast. They had established a fairly large civilization, but with the first arrival of the Spanish, the Karankawa's days were numbered. By 1891, the tribe was considered extinct. Historians and researchers have pieced together a very interesting history on the Karankawas and their culture if you're looking for some unusual research or maybe a very interesting paper. The War of 1812 passed, and Lafitte was more or less left on neutral terms with the U.S. Navy. It was a you-don't-bother-us-and-we-won't-bother-you type of relationship. Lafitte got busy preying on treasure-laden Spanish ships, and the U.S. authorities didn't seem to mind. But Lafitte couldn't let a good thing alone or manage all of his ships, and some started attacking American ships. When U.S. authorities got wind of this, they sent the USS Enterprise into the Gulf to confront Lafitte. The commander of the Enterprise, who we met earlier, Captain Kearney, was an experienced naval officer, and he sailed directly to Galveston Island to confront Lafitte. Flying a flag of truce, he sailed right up to Lafitte's fort and asked Lafitte to have a parley with him, which Lafitte did. Kearney invited Lafitte to cease all pirating operations in American territory and quit preying on American passenger and merchant ships. Lafitte told Kearney that two of his ships, against his orders, had attacked the American ships. Kearney asked Lafitte to deliver the men to him. They were brought back and hung in front of Kearney. But Kearney wasn't impressed. Upon returning to the Enterprise, he had the cannons aimed at Lafitte's fort and then sent a message to Lafitte that he had 30 days to clear out. If the pirates weren't gone at the appointed time, Kearney would blow the old fort to bits. He would also sink every ship in the harbor, and survivors would be taken prisoner 
never see daylight again. For three weeks it looked as though Lafitte had no interest in abandoning the island. At the beginning of the fourth week, however, he began ordering his men to load several chests, casks, and leather sacks, all presumably filled with treasure, onto his ship, which we know was the Pride. This job being completed, the Pride sailed northward into Galveston Bay, and then westward into the Clear Creek Estuary. After sailing a short distance up the creek, the water became too shallow to accommodate the Pride's draft, so according to legend, Lafitte had the treasure loaded into rowboats. The rowboats, each with a pair of stout men at the oars, continued upriver another half hour before turning toward the shore. Lafitte had the treasure buried at approximately two dozen different locations overlooking Clear Creek. Upon returning to the Pride, Lafitte found that it had become mired in the bottom sands of the channel. The pirate crew worked for most of the next day trying to free the ship, but nothing worked. They couldn't dig it out. They couldn't pull it out. Finally, Lafitte decided to abandon it and return to the fortress on Galveston Island. There was still much treasure in stolen goods at the fortress, and Lafitte's crews worked hard at transporting the boxes and drums from the fortress to his anchored fleet in the harbor. During all this time, the crew aboard Kearney's Enterprise watched. Before the thirty days was up, Lafitte and his ships pulled anchor and sailed out into the Gulf of Mexico. Before leaving, Lafitte ordered the fortress burned, and he left about two dozen of his men behind. Pirates are a democratic society of their own making, and it's possible that Lafitte offered them a chance to draw their pay and stay if they wanted to. That decision was no doubt made before Lafitte hid the bulk of his fortune upriver, and those men who stayed likely had no knowledge of where it was or even if it had been taken. As the legend goes, Lafitte never returned to Clear Creek to recover his treasure, which was rumored to be heavy with gold, silver, and jewels. Many expeditions have been launched by various groups of treasure hunters to try to locate Lafitte's catch, but none really knew where to look other than somewhere up Clear Creek. A few decades after Lafitte's exit from the Gulf, rumors started to spread about Lafitte's treasure, rumors that were floating from bar to bar in the growing island city in the person of Crazy Ben, who said he had once been a cabin boy on Lafitte's ship. The story of Crazy Ben comes right up after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. Galveston's port side of town was filled with old sea shanties and shacks, as well as bars, and there, on any given night, you could find old washed-up seamen who enjoyed sharing tales of their experiences in the old days. Crazy Ben was known as a good storyteller, but what really set him apart from his peers was the fact that he paid for all his drinks with Spanish coins. Naturally, that attracted listeners like stableflies, who plied him with drinks in hopes of his giving up the location of wherever it was that he came across those coins he was spending. One night, according to legend, he opened up and told his story, a story which would cost him his life. He told of how he'd been a cabin boy, for Lafitte himself. He, Crazy Ben, was there on the Pride, watching as Lafitte and a handful of his most trusted men rode a lifeboat filled with a number of casks filled with gold coins and jewelry and bars up Clear Creek and out of sight. When Lafitte sailed away, Ben was among the group who were left back on Galveston Island. After making his way to the mainland, he found work on nearby farms and by picking up odd jobs in the growing city of Galveston. And he spent all his spare time searching for those casks up Clear Creek. And then one day he found one. While digging along the bank of Clear Creek, not far from the present community of Nassau Bay, the tip of Crazy Men's shovel struck the top of one of Lafitte's treasure casks. With great difficulty, he raised the heavy object partway out of the hole and smashed open the lid, 
which revealed hundreds of gold coins within. He placed what coins he could manage in his pockets and reburied the cask, taking careful note of the landmarks around that section of the creek. Then he left, only to return every time he got low on money. After telling that story, Ben became very careful about hiding his tracks when he went back to the casks because men were trying to follow him when he took the path that paralleled the creek, so he developed alternate routes that generally succeeded in getting his followers lost. One night in town, while Ben was sharing his stories, a group of tough-looking newcomers were seen listening raptly to his stories of hidden treasure, and soon after Ben staggered out of the saloon in the early morning hours, they too were seen leaving the bar, headed in the same direction. The next morning, Crazy Ben's body was found floating in the bay, his throat slashed. Following his murder, no gold coins were seen in circulation again, and it is presumed by many that old Ben took the location of his coins to his grave. The fact that his body was found, obviously murdered, no doubt led to that assumption. Had he disappeared, one would be left to assume that the men had grabbed him and forced him to take them to where the treasure was buried. Then they would have buried old Ben, and nobody would have been the wiser. Since the 1950s, rumors have circulated around Galveston that individual gold coins have turned up on the banks of Clear Creek, not far from Nassau Bay. In 2009, a contractor clearing hurricane debris from Galveston Island State Park unearthed a box containing a small fortune, and with it, two mysteries. Who owned all the cash, jewelry, and personal effects found, and how did they come to be buried on the beach? The contractor's name was Michael Pate, who had been working in Galveston since Hurricane Ike with Atlanta-based Bird Disaster Relief. In January of 2009, Pete was using a bobcat tractor equipped with a grappling arm to snatch storm debris from the sand. I was on the beach side about 100 to 150 feet from the water, Pete recalled. I was raking the pile and saw this snake come out of the pile. It went right down beside this box. The box was a green steel U.S. Army ammunition canister, which caught Pate's eye because those canisters are good for storing things. It obviously wasn't pirate vintage, so Pete had no ideas about his finding pirate loot, but it did have some surprising contents. He picked up the box and it felt heavy, so his first assumption was that it was full of sand. He shook the sand off and opened the box. Then he muttered, Unreal, to himself. The ammo can's rubber seal had perfectly preserved everything in the box, a pair of diamond rings, dog tags, military medals, possibly from Vietnam or World War II, an 1863 Confederate $50 bill, silver certificates with serial numbers in consecutive order, silver bracelets, watches, an Artie Donovan football card, and a mint-condition Ford Model A radiator cap. They also found family photographs, along with what he believed was the owner's wallet, with a $20 bill, driver's license, and social security card inside. Pate said his upbringing prevented him from keeping any of it. He figured the owner lost everything in the storm. He followed up on the name and found out that the man had been incarcerated. The man's name was John A. Sidwell. That name matched a 59-year-old island man who was serving a two-year state sentence following a conviction on intoxication assault charges in August of 2004. Sidwell had struck three pedestrians walking on the seawall with his truck, which was doing 60 at the time, when it swerved onto the sidewalk. The truck had hit one man and two women at a park to Surrey. After hitting them, he tried to back up and leave the scene with a 41-year-old woman still trapped underneath. Bystanders pulled him from the truck and held him until the police came. Pate checked the location of where the man had lived and compared it to where the box was found, 
believing it very unlikely that it had been lost in the storm. Maybe the man had buried it himself. Why is one of the mysteries we'll never know. So where could Lafitte's treasure be today? Could it be that there were multiple burial locations instead of just one? Was it buried underground or lost underwater? Could it be that the treasure is in a different location now than where it was buried? Was it on one of Lafitte's ships when it sank? Also, when Lafitte left Galveston, no one knows exactly where he went. It would make sense that when he left, he took most of his treasure with him, unless he was worried that Kearney and the U.S. Navy would try to seize his ship, and that is a strong possibility. These questions are why the mystery is still such an interesting topic today, more than 200 years later. The state of Louisiana is not exclusive for rumors of the treasure's whereabouts, as residents of Texas have claimed that the treasure was buried somewhere along the Texas Gulf Coast. There are many accounts that say Lafitte settled in Galveston after his adventures in Louisiana. At the top, we played some audio from two brothers belonging to a family in Baytown, Texas, telling their story that they believed they had found one of Lafitte's sunken ships. The family thinks this could be a clue as to where the actual treasure is. An online article carried the following headline, Baytown Cousins Believe They Found a Pirate Ship. Houston, it's the treasure hunt of a lifetime, and now it's landed them on national TV. The Hicks boys from Baytown were featured on Discovery Channel's Expedition Unknown for their quest to solve the unanswered disappearance of French pirate Jean Lafitte. They believe now that they found his sunken ship. It started for us with this family story, Cody Hicks said. For the Hicks boys, the legend of Jean Lafitte was always their family's little secret. We were told as kids that we were directly related to Lafitte, Cody Hicks said. A tale told through time, but like most legends, this one too was lost, even to them. He just doesn't get the notoriety that he deserves, Jay Hicks said. Our theory is that he went right outside of Galveston, scuttled his ship, and that's where his ship and treasure is buried today, Jay Hicks said. They heard it from their father, who heard it from his. And they would say, somewhere over there is Lafitte's ship, your ancestor's ship, Cody Hicks said. Each generation searched for the same ship. Of course, we couldn't find it, but we looked, Cody's father Tony said. But so far, a search is all it's been until now. With the help of the Discovery Channel's Expedition Unknown, they've had a major break in the case. Using a magnetic probe, the team found a large, ship-shaped object, 15 feet underground, outside what they call Laws Lake. They even pull up evidence from below, a piece of charred wood and a rusty nail. Just about got to be the remains of the ship, Tony Hicks said. Lafitte's ship was called the Pride, but that's something they've already found. I'm proud of them. I'm proud of them for digging into it, Tony Hicks said. And whether it's a pirate ship or not, they hope it's a clue to their ultimate treasure. Which is? Finding out who Lafitte really was, Cody Hicks said. The evidence pulled up from underground has been sent off to be tested. In order to get enough resources for an excavation, the cousins are hoping to get their own spin-off TV series. There's also a Lafitte treasure event in Laporte, Texas, and it's called the Annual Search for Lafitte's Gold. The City of Laporte Visitors Bureau writes, In the romance-studded chronicles of Texas, the name and deeds of Jean Lafitte, the pirate, loom large. His base of operations was once on Galveston Island, and his ships sailed up and down the coast of the vicinity. One of the many legends about the famous buccaneer has its locale in Laporte. According to the tale, Lafitte once weighed anchor off what is now Bay Ridge. 
With two henchmen, he unloaded a heavy chest and carried it into some thick shrubbery where it was buried. Once his treasure was safely hidden, Lafitte returned to his ship alone. If the legend is true, the pirate treasure still remains buried and undisturbed. There are no historical records of it ever being unearthed. However, from time to time, a few gold coins have been found in the bay waters. On October 20th, in celebration of the legend of Lafitte's buried prize, the city of Laporte will release new treasures, in quotes, online at geocaching.com. The geocache clues will be released as the search for Lafitte's gold festival begins at 4 p.m. at Five Points Plaza. The article goes on, If you love concerts, street entertainment, and family fun, you're going to love the Search for Lafitte's Gold Street Festival. The day includes live music on the main stage, some of the best food trucks from the Houston area, and over 50 craft and artisan vendors. It's a free event for the entire family. Switching gears back to Louisiana, this John Lafitte tale quotes a former student of Mount Carmel Academy in New Orleans, stating that the treasure is buried near an oak tree on the school's campus. This article provides images of newspapers from 1921, and one column in particular that talks about Lafitte's treasure. It reads that a catch of ancient gold coins was found near Jefferson Island. It also mentions reports of larger sums of the treasure being buried in the appropriately named small town of Lafitte, Louisiana. One story even says that a swamp in the Natalbany River in Springfield, Louisiana, was drained because Lafitte's treasure was thought to be underwater there. Much to the chagrin of the locals that helped drain the swamp, there was no trace of the treasure to speak of. Whoops, sorry fish. To this day, this mystery still has historians, researchers, and treasure hunters alike scrambling to find answers. Metal detector companies may be the only satisfied parties, as the mystery of Jean Lafitte's unfound treasure seems to be a voyage that will never end. In a 2010 online article in thefacts.com titled, Historical Clues Point to Buried Treasure, Mary Beth Jones writes, Does your interest in history have to do with the hope of finding some tremendously important or monetarily valuable treasure? This might be anything from an ancient Indian burial site to a chest of Spanish gold, or even the answer to some question that has puzzled historians for years. My miscellaneous history file contains a column by the late Bill Billingsley, who owned and operated a weekly newspaper in Lake Jackson, and was one of my favorite writers. Soon after Hurricane Alicia had struck the area, Bill wrote a column reminding area residents that despite the tremendous destruction caused by such storms, they also might be a treasure hunter's best friend. Such storms move huge volumes of sand along the coast, he wrote, noting that even the richest of well-funded historical foundations couldn't possibly afford the equipment and time necessary to accomplish such a large-scale operation. It's no secret this stretch of the Texas coast was a frequent graveyard for Spanish treasure ships in the 1500s and 1600s, Bill wrote. The pirate, Jean Lafitte, who is most closely tied to Galveston Island, haunted the lower reaches of Chocolate and Baystrop Bayous when he was preying on the Spanish fleet during the 1700s, Bill wrote. He also mentioned the blockade runners that utilized the bays and inlets along our coastline while trying to evade Federal ships during the Civil War. The old Spanish ships, particularly, had numerous fittings, weapons, and utensils of brass, cast iron, and silver, which could easily survive those three to four centuries, he contended, particularly if they had been covered with sand for a good portion of that time. Among the historical artifacts that have been found along Texas beaches have been astrolabes, a Spanish navigational instrument which Bill described as having the appearance of a brass pulley with pointer dials and eye peepholes centered on it. 
Other finds have included small cannon and rifle barrels and locks, gold bars and jewel-encrusted crucifixes, not to mention chains, crossbow fittings, and silver and gold coins. J. Frank Doby, a favorite writer of Texas legends, recounted the story of Lafitte's hiding a treasure along a bayou, possibly baystrup or chocolate, in the Galveston Bay area. The pirate marked the site of his treasure with a long brass surveyor's rod driven almost flush with the ground, Doby wrote. Billingsley pointed out that wave action and construction projects have uncovered such things as cannonballs, old brass shell cases, cutlery, coins, keys, and dishes from the old towns of Surfside and the original Velasco. These artifacts have been found by several area residents through the years, he said. Describing other articles that have been in various parts of Texas, he mentioned a variety of Indian relics, including fire-blackened rocks, which were used by Indians to cook food. He also mentioned arrowhead finds, as well as flint scrapers, which he described as usually being a hemispherical piece of flint, a little bigger than a golf ball, and with chip-sharpened edges which they used to scrape animal hides. Texas Indians also left behind a number of different flint articles, ranging from spearheads and smaller arrow points to tomahawk heads and drills that were shaped like a sharpened key, and were used for drilling wood and leather. Closer to home, outdoorsmen who enjoy hunting ducks in the salt grass or who beachcomb at low tide might actually cash in on some articles with intrinsic as well as historical value. Their payoff could include treasures from a Spanish galleon, Billingsley said, mentioning such things as gold, silver, and jeweled relics that are highly valued by collectors. Like most history buffs, however, he admitted the real thrill for most treasure hunters is locating any kind of relic from a past civilization. These were the items that were necessary to the survival of past inhabitants, and that helps tell the story of their lives. Legends of treasures buried in this area were among the favorite recounted by the late Mona Sanders, whose family had lived along Brazoria County's coastline for generations. She delighted in telling about pirate treasure said to have been buried along the shore near San Luis Pass, and the exhaustive efforts of pirates and others to find these valuables after nature had changed the look of the coastline. Some of these treasures are still out there somewhere, she would say, and some day, she said, they'll be found. She never suggested this would reward someone who was actively looking for the treasure, however, holding to the opinion that the discovery would be accidental, doubly rewarding someone who stumbled upon it while enjoying the pleasures of their beaches. Continuing with our story, the pirate Lafitte never returned to Clear Creek to recover his treasure, according to legend. In 1821, the schooner USS Enterprise was sent to Galveston to remove Lafitte from the Gulf. The commander of the Enterprise, as you know, was Lieutenant Commander Lawrence Kearney, and he was a capable man. He was able to make a spectacular catch of four pirate schooners commanded by Charles Gibbs, an ex-privateer and a vicious a pirate as ever lived. On one occasion, Gibbs had chopped off a captured captain's arms and legs. On another, he had burned an entire merchant crew to death. Because he had attacked an American merchant ship, he was on Kearney's most wanted list. Kearney found Gibbs and his crew of 100 men in the action of plundering a captured merchant ship in the waters off Cuba, and in a fierce fight, the pirates were put to rout. Forty of them were captured, and the rest fled into the jungles, including Gibbs, who was finally caught and hanged in 1831. Lafitte and his men continued to take Spanish ships in the Gulf of Mexico, often returning to Galveston or the barrier islands near New Orleans to unload cargo or take on supplies arranged by Pierre. The congressional delegation in Louisiana began to demand that the federal government do something to halt the smuggling, and more U.S. Navy ships were sent to the Gulf. 
their patrols and interventions reduced the number of active pirates in that region. In October or November of 1821, Lafitte's ship was ambushed as he attempted to ransom a recent prize. After first escaping with some crew, he and his men were captured and jailed. On February 13th, though, he escaped, likely with outside help. Over the next few months, Lafitte established a base along the coast of Cuba, where he bribed local officials with a share of the profits. In late April 1822, Lafitte was captured again after taking his first American ship. The American warship which captured him turned Lafitte over to the local authorities, who promptly released him. When Lafitte and other pirates operated in the area began attacking merchant ships carrying legal goods to Cuba, that angered the Cuban officials. By the end of 1822, Cuba had banned all forms of sea raiding. In June of 1822, Lafitte approached the officials in the Great Columbia, whose government under General Simon Bolivar had begun commissioning former privateers as officers in the new navy. Lafitte was granted a commission and given a new ship, a 43-ton schooner named General Santander. For the first time, Lafitte was legally authorized to take Spanish ships. Lafitte continued to patrol the shipping lanes around Cuba. In November of 1822, he made news in the American press after escorting an American schooner through the pirate-strewn area and providing them with extra cannonballs and food. In February 1823, Lafitte was cruising off the town of Omoa, Honduras, on a schooner, General Santander. Omoa was the site of the largest Spanish fort in Central America, built to guard the Spanish silver shepherds from the mines of Tegucigalpa for overseas destinations. Lafitte attempted to take what appeared to be two Spanish merchant vessels on the night of February 4th. It was a cloudy night with low visibility. The Spanish ships appeared to be fleeing, but at 10 o'clock p.m. turned back for a frontal counterattack against Lafitte's ship. The Spanish ships were heavily armed privateers, or warships, and returned heavy fire. Wounded in the battle, Lafitte is believed to have died just after dawn on February 5th. He was buried at sea in the Gulf of Honduras. The Gaceta de Cartagena and the Gaceta de Colombia carried obituaries that noted, The loss of this brave naval officer is moving. No American newspaper published an obituary of him. An historian named Davis writes that Lafitte's death prevented his becoming obsolete. By 1825, piracy had been essentially eradicated in the Gulf of Mexico, and the new world of the Gulf simply had no room for his kind, he wrote. Given his legendary reputation, there was much speculation about whether or how Lafitte had died. Rumors abounded that he had changed his name after leaving Galveston and disappeared, that he was killed by his own men shortly after leaving Galveston, or that he had rescued Napoleon and that both had died in Louisiana. In 1843, Mirabeau B. Lamar investigated many of the Lafitte stories and concluded that, while there were no authentic records of death, Lafitte was likely dead. Ramsey compares the numerous legends related to the life and death of Lafitte to those about King Arthur and Robin Hood. Lafitte is rumored to have buried treasure at many locations, including Galveston and sites along coastal Louisiana, such as Contraband Bayou and Lake Charles. Ramsey believes that over time, almost every foot of Grand Isle has been spaded for pirate gold. In 1909, a man was given a six-year prison sentence for fraud after swindling thousands of dollars from people by claiming that he knew where the Lafitte treasure was buried and taking their money for the promise to find it. Word has it that if you stand still and listen anywhere on the southern Texas or Louisiana coast and hear the sound of treasure hunters' shovels digging for Lafitte's treasure, there might be some truth to that. And here's some odds and ends for you. Lafitte's blacksmith shop is named after Jean's brother, Pierre. 
It's located on Bourbon Street in New Orleans. It's believed Lafitte may have spent time there in his earlier years, using it to orchestrate the transfer of smuggled goods. Constructed in the 1720s, the structure stands today as possibly the oldest building in the United States that houses a bar, Lafitte's Blacksmith Shop Bar. There's a Jean Lafitte Swamp Tour located in the eponymous Jean Lafitte National Park and Barataria Preserve. It's located just 25 minutes from downtown New Orleans. Jean Lafitte Swamp Tours have been operating daily bayou tours since the 1980s. Guides educate the public on all kinds of wildlife, the Cajun culture, and life on the bayou. You'll be tempted to feed the alligators while you're on that tour, but due to its location in the National Park, alligator feeding is not allowed in the Jean Lafitte Swamp Tour. Just something to keep in mind. Here is a rare account of how Lafitte met his end, taken from the pirate's own book by Charles Elms. Accounts of these transactions having reached Lafitte, he plainly perceived that there was a determination to sweep all his cruisers from the sea, and a war of extermination appeared to be waged against him. In a fit of desperation, he procured a large and fast sailing brigantine mounting 16 guns, and having selected a crew of 160 men, he started without any commission as a regular pirate, determined to rob all nations, and neither to give or receive any quarter. A British sloop of war, which was cruising in the Gulf of Mexico, having heard that Lafitte himself was at sea, kept a sharp lookout from the masthead. One morning, as an officer was sweeping the horizon with his glass, he discovered a long, dark-looking vessel, low in the water, but having very tall masts, with sails white as the driven snow. As the sloop of war had the weather gauge of the pirate and could outsail her before the wind, she set her studding sails and crowded every inch of canvas in chase. As soon as Lafitte ascertained the character of his opponent, he ordered the awnings to be furled and set his big square sail and shot rapidly through the water. But as the breeze freshened, the sloop of war came up rapidly with the pirate, who, finding no chance of escaping, determined to sell his life as dearly as possible. The guns were cast loose and the shot handed up, and a fire opened upon the ship which killed a number of men and carried away her fore topmast, but she reserved her fire until within cable's distance of the pirate, when she fired a general discharge from her broadside and a volley of small arms. The broadside was too much elevated to hit the low hull of the brigantine, but was not without effect. The fore topmast fell, the jaws of the main gaff were severed, and a large proportion of the rigging came rattling down on deck. Ten of the pirates were killed, but Lafitte remained unhurt. The sloop of war entered her men over the starboard bow, and a terrific contest with pistols and cutlasses ensued. Lafitte received two wounds at this time which disabled him. A grape shot broke the bone of his right leg, and he received a cut in the abdomen but his crew fought like tigers, and the deck was ankle-deep with blood and gore. The captain of the boarders received such a tremendous blow on the head from the butt-end of a musket, as stretched him senseless on the deck near Lafitte, who raised his dagger to stab him to the heart. But the tide of his existence was ebbing like a torrent, his brain was giddy, his aim faltered, and the point descended in the captain's right thigh. Dragging away the blade with the last convulsive energy of a death struggle, he lacerated the wound." Again the reeking steel was upheld, and Lafitte placed his left hand near the captain's heart to make his aim more sure. Again the dizziness of dissolution spread over his sight. Down came the dagger into the captain's left thigh, and Lafitte was a corpse. The upper deck was cleared, and the boarders rushed below on the main deck to complete their conquest. Here the slaughter was dreadful, till the pirates called up for quarter, and the carnage ceased. All the pirates that surrendered were taken to Jamaica and tried before the Admiralty Court where sixteen were condemned to die, six were subsequently pardoned, and ten were executed. 
Thus perished Lafitte, a man superior in talent, in knowledge of his profession, in courage, and moreover in physical strength. But unfortunately his reckless career was marked with crimes of the darkest dye. One of these days I'd like to bring all of you together, or maybe as many of you as can make it, and that'll probably be online, with an opportunity to meet some of you and say thanks in person for being with us for so many of these adventures. They're adventures to me at any rate. I don't always know where they'll take us when I begin, or what I'll find along the way, but the end is always kind of sad. I bring our ship back to the dock, empty, never having a chance to thank the crew and the passengers in person, and retire to seek out yet another story, which I'll admit is a labor of love, for I love history and the sharing of it. As far as you listeners go, I've read your emails and reviews, and through them I know you all represent a wide swath of humanity, from law enforcement to military, to all kinds of white and blue-collar workers, to moms and dads, grams and gramps, and young adults, to business owners, investment pros, artists, craftsmen and women, museum curators, treasure hunters, dreamers, college professors, lecturers, retirees, semi-retirees, joggers, night workers, pastors, entertainment professionals, literary types, outdoor types, athletes, young boys and girls who have written in to me, Australians, Brits, Irish wrestlers, authors, radio personalities, listeners from India, the Philippines, Russia, Ukraine, America, UK, New Zealand, and Canada, first responders, night guards, lawn cutters, joggers, media people, script writers, and folks just trying to get a good night's sleep. To all of you, a big thank you. Thanks for listening, for supporting us at Patreon, for supporting our sponsors, for sharing our shows, for writing your reviews, for sending me suggestions, and so on. If I missed you or you feel inspired, write me at 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com. I always try to get back to you promptly. I'm much slower responding to Facebook and Messenger. Keep that in mind. We've got lots of great adventures ahead, and we'll be leaving the dock again soon. Our shows come out every Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, all of you, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.